Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. I've called this message Deep Hope. And the method to my madness is the idea that I think oftentimes nowadays our hope is very shallow. In fact, it's kind of like wishing. And so we express ourselves as to say that we've lost hope when true hope can never be lost because it's so profoundly deep. So hope isn't wishing, hope is solid. And hope implies that something's wrong. Something isn't quite what I want it to be. If, if we just wait a little bit longer, what I'm longing for would be fulfilled because that's what I'm hoping for. But sometimes I think that we are looking for the next mountain, we're looking for the next rainbow, when we ought to be maybe looking down below our feet, deep, and discover the hands of God that are below us, supporting us and holding us up. Scripture actually describes hope as an anchor. An anchor is down deep, deep in the depths of the ocean, and there it keeps us secure. And so I want to take us back to this deep hope because there's never been a time that we needed it. As you know, this year has disturbed all of us. It's been a year of loss. And I won't mention COVID anymore, promise, this entire message. But just for now, just think of the loss. For some of us, just the loss of normal. For others of us, it's the loss of going to work, the loss of our kids going to school, these kind of disturbances. But then for others of us, we've actually lost our businesses. I've counseled people who have lost their marriages. And there's people that have actually been sick and have actually had family members die. And so it's been a year of loss and disturbance. And so we need deep hope, don't we? So we come to this passage today, which is going to bring us back to our very roots of the cross and the resurrection. The passage today is a story I love to tell. And I realize I don't think I've ever preached on this story. I couldn't find any notes in my 50 years of pastoring where I've actually taught on this, but it's the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus on Easter day. And as you know, it's, it's a profound appearance of Jesus. The uniqueness of this passage is it's the only one that happens outside of Jerusalem on Easter day. It's also a rare appearance to two undefined followers who happen not to be any of the 12 disciples. And so these two unsuspecting followers have this appearance encounter of Jesus and Jesus takes them back to deep hope. Father, we pray that you would guide us now as we study your word in Jesus' name, amen. So we find ourselves in Luke chapter 24, 
beginning in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles its west of Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. You can feel the tension. Jesus himself. So verse 17 says, Jesus asks, what are you discussing together as you walk along? So what's going on, guys? What are you talking about? And they stood still with their faces downcast. And they respond, one of them named Cleopas, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's a nice way of saying, dude, you gotta be out of your mind if you don't know what has happened in Jerusalem over the last three days. Days. Well, Jesus says, what things? Don't you love Jesus style? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in the word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped, there's the word, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, today is the third day since all this took place, meaning since the crucifixion. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of the companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Now pause right there. Jesus isn't not calling them fools. It's a Hebraism. Uh, it's a manner of speech in his culture to say there's more wisdom to be gained here. There's something you're missing. And now this is the point of the whole story. So he says, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets for the next seven miles to Emmaus, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, meaning concerning the fact that the Messiah had to suffer and die. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, come on, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread, picture this, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And as he did that, their eyes were opened and they recognized him 
and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the 11 disciples and those with them assembled together saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened to them on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now here it happens, verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. Wow, what a story. You'll have to read the rest of it. Jesus actually eats in front of them and even asks them, do you have any fish? So he eats all of this so they can understand he's not a ghost, he's not an apparition, he's not just a mere floating spirit. He is the resurrected Jesus. But he is the reason for hope. So let's go back and unpack this together. So there's two followers of Jesus. Who are they? They're probably numbered among the 70. You'll remember there was the 12, then there was the 70 that Jesus sent out in the book of Luke. And it's probable that they were one of the 70 and probable that they were one of the 120 on the day of Pentecost. So they're walking this seven mile journey back to their hometown. Now, I love the fact that Jesus in a very enigmatic way just happens along and asks, what are they discussing? And they belittle Jesus to say, are you the only one that, and Jesus flips it and shows them that they are the only ones that don't understand why the Messiah had to suffer and die, but they're not the only ones. The entire Jewish nation didn't understand that. And you and I, as I'll explain, often don't understand what to do with suffering and evil in this world. So we'll come back to that. So Jesus of Nazareth is described as a good prophet, powerful in the word and deed, but the chief priests crucified him and he was our hope. And Jesus is going to reestablish that hope, but it's going to be a deeper hope than they imagined. And then the story concludes by the women uh, being noted and this discussion of possible uh, sightings of Jesus. But I love the part where Jesus returns them back to the idea that the Messiah had to suffer and die. What I see here right out of the gate before we go on is that these guys, these two followers have had the floor pulled out from under them. It's almost as if they're standing on this mountaintop and they're looking as, as to where they want to go to the next mountaintop and yet they find themselves catapulted down into this deep valley of despair and they're scrambling trying to get back up to what they hoped for but Jesus pulls them back down into the valley 
to let him know that no, this suffering happened, this darkness, this dealing with sin had to happen. And he pulls them right back down into this valley. And it's not until he breaks the bread, which you and I know, and the reader is instantly knowledgeable of this, that that's become the symbol for you and I of communion. We break the bread, meaning Jesus was broken on the cross. He had to suffer and die. Here's the big take home right from the beginning. In the valley, we discover deep hope. It's not where we want to go. It's not what we want to think about. But that's where we discover what God's love for you and I is. And that's where we discover the power of the mission of Jesus. There was a time years, maybe even 40 years ago in my life, where I was actually driving, four-wheel driving with my family in a place called Deep Creek. It's up in the San Bernardino Mountains. And we had driven in through a little town called Running Springs. Some of you know that town. And we made our way zigzagging all the way down to Deep Creek. But it had been raining and it was slippery and we didn't have like a true uh, deep clearance four-wheel drive. We had a Subaru. That's kind of like a suburban uh, four-wheel, not a, the name, but the, the city, the urban four-wheel drive. And so we come to Deep Creek, and Deep Creek was swollen. It was a real river. And to my eye, it looked like it was about 14 inches deep. I'm looking at the clearance of my Subaru, and I'm thinking, I don't know. Maybe if I punch it, if I get through it, but I'm kind of stuck because I can't go back up these switchbacks after this rain. It's gonna, we're going to be slipping and sliding and we're just about two miles out the backside. And we look at each other, Jan and I, and I said, do we go for it? And we said, I think we got to. And we punched it and we made it through and that became a picture for me in life of there's times where we got to go through the deep stuff, the hard stuff, the muddy stuff, the difficult stuff, the kind of stuff none of us like to go through. When we hear the word hope, we often hear happy thriving, good day, oh, I hope so. But hope implies that something's wrong. Hope implies, it's not wishing, but it implies that there's a yearning for something better. And how do we get to that? The Bible describes the cross as the porthole through which we get to the resurrection. Did you hear that? Let me say that again. The Bible describes the cross, the crucifixion, the suffering of Jesus as the porthole to which we get to the resurrection. So just as these two followers struggled in their understanding to understand the significance of Jesus' sufferings, I think we struggle with that too. Think about it. So the Jewish nation was not expecting the Messiah to suffer. 
they were expecting the Messiah to ride in something like the Maccabean, Maccabean revolt on a white steed, clear out the Romans, establish his throne there in Jerusalem. In fact, one of the two of the disciples' mom had actually petitioned Jesus for her sons, her sons, to sit on his left and right-hand side when he gets to his kingdom in Jerusalem. They missed it completely. They didn't see that there was a valley between where they were and where they wanted to be. Let me take you back to Isaiah 53, just to let you know what Jesus might have reminded the disciples of. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, speaking of the Messiah, it says he was despised, rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Do you feel the valley? Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. We held him in low esteem. Surely there he took our pain and bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God and, and stricken by God and afflicted by God. But in reality, he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that should have been upon us was laid upon him and it brought us peace. It would be scriptures like this in the Torah that Jesus was pointing the two disciples to. If you think about it, it was not just the Jewish nation that didn't know what to do with the suffering of the Messiah. It's you and me. Think about it. If I had to tell you the number of times I, as a pastor counselor, had to talk to people about the issue of evil, uh, if I got a dollar for every counseling appointment, I'd be a wealthy man because we struggle with that. We say things like, how could a good God who's loving, who's present, who's powerful, allow these things to happen in my life? We don't know what to do with that. There's a word called theodicy, which is our meager attempt to explain to another person why there's evil in the world. A long time ago, I learned that to not go for the bait of giving them an intellectual answer, but go for their heart and feel their pain. C.S. Lewis says that this is the Achilles heel of God, that, you know, if there was, wasn't evil in the world, a lot of people wouldn't have a problem accepting the reality of God. So we as humanity don't know what to do with this dark side of our lives. I was recently reading a book about post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's a growing phenomenon in research where we're discovering there's people that in the valley of their lives where they go through this huge trauma or they're the spouse or family member of someone who's gone through a huge trauma, whether in combat or an accident, something has happened to them that they actually grow out of this. 
Jim Rendon, in his book Upside, which is a bestseller right now, it's not a uh, Christian book at all, but I was so surprised to see that there's so many correlative truths to what uh, science is discovering. He uses the term assumptive self, and that's a term to describe what we assume should happen. It's that idea that I'm on this top of the mountain and I should be over on that type top of the mountain and I assumed I was just gonna walk straight there but I didn't know that there was this trauma, this valley in between me and where I'm going. He talks about the fact that this valley becomes a catalyst that forces and he actually uses biblical language. It says forces us to abandon our old self in the valley and to take on the new self and the valley becomes the pivotal point of our lives. Another book, recently a bestseller by David Brooks, The Second Mountain. He mentions the fact that in the valley, we have a decision to make whether we become bitter or better based on what we've gone through. And he says, I quote, the valley is where we shed the old self and resurrect the new self. So instead of scrambling, trying to run up the other side of the mountain, which often feels like it's full of gravel and I can't really make it up, these authors are suggesting that we deal with the pain, we deal with the trauma, because right there is where life may emerge. Now, in Christianese, what I would say to you and I is we bring all of our pain, all of our suffering, yes, and all of our sin to the cross there in the valley. And there, that becomes the porthole through which I emerge to the resurrected Jesus. I'm so old that I'm gonna refer to the matrix as an illustration. You know this poignant moment where Neo has come back to life and he's dodging bullets in in some kind of surreal time and, and, and the evil is coming at him. And the question is, what is Neo going to do? Well, I can tell you what I would do. I would run the other way. All these guys in the matrix are are out of their minds. They're trying to kill me. I'm running the other way. And Neo gets up and he runs into evil itself and confronts it, deals with it. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't run from the cross. He sprinted to the cross. He carried his own cross and he died there on the cross. There he died for your pain, your trauma, your suffering, and your sin. So now, the cross becomes this portal for the day that we're celebrating today, the resurrection. And there, these two moments, the cross and the resurrection, separated by three days, become the foundation of yours and mine, deep hope that can't be shaken. Going back to this book 
that I mentioned earlier, Upside, by Jim Rendon. Here, as a secularist, he suggests there's at least two things that have to happen there in the valley. We have to find a role model, and we have to write a new story. And guess what? Yep, you guessed it. That's exactly what the Bible says Jesus is for us. He is not only our role model, but we enter into his story. And that's what Jesus is getting at with the two disciples here on the road to Emmaus. Let me refer you to Romans 6, 5. There, Paul says, if we have been united with his death, we will certainly be united with his resurrection. In verse 11, in the same way, commit yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul sums it all up in another passage in Galatians 2.20 where he says, here's my story, my new story as I emerge out of the valley. I am crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. Yet, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loves me and gave himself for me. Do you see what happened here? And this is what Jesus is inviting the two disciples to grab a hold of. You can't avoid suffering. You can't avoid evil. You can't avoid sin. And you can't avoid pain. It's in this world. But guess what? Jesus came not just to make you have a happy, thriving life. He came to deal with the cancer of this world, the sin and the pain of this world. And there in the valley, he took it on himself. Now, you and I, we have a choice. When we come to this moment where we see the cross and I'm deciding, what am I going to do? Am I going to believe or am I not going to believe? When I believe, I enter in to the story of Jesus. That I now have, not only Jesus went to the cross, but I brought my stuff to the cross. And not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but I am a new creation in Christ. I know I don't look quite so new. The Bible describes kind of a two-part thing where I'm spiritually new and alive in Christ, and yet we groan and travail for the ultimate newness, new bodies, uh, new heaven, new earth. That is all yet to come. But in the now, transformation of me has begun, and I am now living in Christ Jesus. I'm taking on his story. It's kind of like saying this, before you can get to the butterfly, you gotta deal with the cocoon. It's, the cocoon is, is a picture of, of yes, sleeping, uh, this, this sleeping caterpillar, but it's really kind of a picture of did somebody die? It's not a pretty thing, this chrysalis. But when the butterfly emerges, we see what we have hoped for. And so Jesus invites the, the two followers and he invites you and I 
to follow him into the valley, to the cross. And I challenge you, what are you gonna do with your stuff? What are you gonna do with your loss? What are you gonna do with your pain? You can only blame, you can only gripe, you can only uh, pick apart this world so long where you and I have to decide, am I gonna own my own stuff and bring it to Jesus? And there, that's where the moment happens. It's the pivotal catalytic moment where we are forgiven, we emerge new people. I love the fact that when we baptize people, we bring them back to this very story and we take them down into the water I had one man say to me, hold me down a long time. I've lived a bad life. They're buried with Christ. It's, it's the identification with the crucifixion. And then when we bring them up out of the water, it's the identification with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new life. This last week in our staff meeting, one of the spouses of our staff member, her name is Mary, shared her story with us. Some of us knew parts of our sto her story, but we didn't know the whole story. And so there she is, she's in her wheelchair, she's a quadriplegic, and she is telling us her story. She told us how she was raised in a very painful context where Early on, her mother deserted the family and ran off with a younger man. And she grew up bitter and resentful for that. But she meets Jesus Christ as a teenager. And after that, she actually confronts the man that stole her mother and reaches out to forgive him and to love him. A few years later, she's actually 22 now, she and her husband Jack are, are college pastors and they're driving to or from the church. We were located in Encinitas at the time and an older lady runs a stop sign, crashes into their car and leaves Mary paralyzed. What do you do? You're 22. Your whole life of what you thought was gonna happen, you were gonna go from this part of the mountain to that part of the mountain and live happily ever after and you find yourself in the valley. What do you do? Well, Mary actually applied everything that we've been discussing here today that Jesus loved her, that she could give her suffering, her pain, and her sin to Jesus. And Jesus had given her a new heart. So later on, I'm guessing months or years later, they're driving through the neighborhood where they suppose this lady lives. And she's now older and Mary suggests that they try to locate her, hunt her down, this lady who had made Mary paralyzed. What do you say to her? You did this to me. What do you say to her? I don't, I don't want you 
in my life. What do you say to her? They come up to the door, they introduce themselves, and the lady invites them in. And Mary, if you know Mary, you would expect this of her. She not only forgives the lady, but she reaches out to love this woman who feels so bad. That is resurrection. That is incredible. And that is the very, the very thing we're talking about where the pain and the suffering and the sin that Mary experienced, she said, what could I do? Jesus forgave me. So I had, I wanted to forgive her. Folks, as we uh, continue through this year, there's gonna be times that we are disappointed. But my good news for you is that we are a unique people. We have discovered a hope that is deeper than anybody's wish, anybody's longing, anybody's yearning. It's this deep hope that is planted on the firm foundation of the cross and the resurrection. And no matter whatever else happens circumstantially or people or politics or society or medicine, anything else, nothing can change that deep hope, the anchor of our souls. So I encourage you and I on this Easter day to go deep and discover the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this day, this, this Easter 2021 that we'll never have again, that it's pointing us back 2,000 years to an event on which we plant our feet. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins, for taking our suffering, for taking our pain, our heartache, our loss. And thank you, Lord, that you got up, that you rose from the dead. And in that, we discover the newness of our life. Now, God, as we believe and put our trust in you, rewrite our story. Rewrite our story in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And while we're praying, while our heads are bowed in this moment, if you've never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you're, you're there in the valley. I want to encourage you to do that right now. Or maybe you realize you just did it in a very superficial way. You had no idea either the depth of the pain of this world or the depth of what Christ did for you. If that's you today, would you pray this prayer with me and step into the cross and the resurrection by faith? Pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord, come into my life. I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that you died on the cross 
for my sin and pain. And I believe that you rose again from the dead and that I am being raised with you and will be raised with you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, would you do me a favor? Would you just text the number on the screen? Let me know and we'll reach out to you and we'll offer you everything you need to get your faith started in this new life in Jesus Christ. May the grace, the peace, the presence of Jesus who died for your sins and rose from the grave, may his presence be with you this day and forevermore in Jesus' name. He is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.